Uh, we are at that point in our service now where we will reflect on a passage of Scripture. For those of you who are new to the Christian faith or investigating it, we thank you for coming. We look at a portion of Scripture every week and reflect upon what it means for our lives. And this morning, continuing our look at the book of Acts, we have a selected passage from the end of Acts chapter 4 and the beginning of Acts chapter 5, and here to read it for us is Shen. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to chapter 5, verses 11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a, price, a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your, your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I want to thank my staff for uh, giving me this text to preach. It's always fun to talk about this, people dying in the middle of no reason at all, or so it seems. So, Kiernan, thank you for assigning this text, and Joe, thank you for signing me up for this week. I appreciate that. Malcolm Foley, an African-American Christian leader, recently said this, and I quote, the church is not a social club. The church ought to love in such a manner that the world is confused because they have never seen such love before. Malcolm Foley was speaking these things about a church acting just like the church we see in the texts before us, because in this text, we see things that the world has never seen before and have rarely seen since. A church is not a social club here. Instead, it is a church that utterly confuses, even terrifies, 
the culture around it. And yet a church so powerful that people are irresistibly attracted to it. Terrifying, yet irresistible. What adjectives to describe the church? Let us compare those two adjectives to the adjectives we would apply to the average church in Toronto today. Terrifying and irresistible? How about tepid and considered irrelevant? Well, that is generally what the church is seen as. The differences between the church then and the church now is partly found here in these verses. For here in these verses, in this church at this time, we see two unchanging realities that thrust themselves into our minds and get into our psychological faces, as it were. So we cannot miss them. Two realities, actually two roads, two pathways, two contrasting trajectories are in front of us. The road to being terrifying and irresistible, or the road to being tepid and irrelevant. And most of the pathway de decision and division has to do with this. What do we do with our money? Here, two points are made. The author. First point, grace will truly free you. Second point, greed will truly kill you. There is a freedom in grace and a folly in greed. And that are that those are the two contrasting paths that we're challenged to look at and ask of ourselves, which road am I on? The road of freedom or of folly? The road of grace or greed? Where are you? One leads to freedom and power. The other to slavery and death. Which one are you on? Grace will truly free you. Greed will truly kill you. Let's look at these two. Grace will truly free you, the last part of the book, of the chapter of Acts 4. Here we see full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things they belonged to him was his own. There is here a primary unity, one heart, one mind. They're not free of disagreements, but they know how to handle disagreements, and they're one in vision and purpose, mutual love and care. When they have a problem, they practice Colossians 3. If anyone has a complaint against each other, let them come together and let it, there be forgiveness. That's what they're practicing, a unity, but a unity primarily expressed here in generosity. Look how he continues to describe it. I'm going to switch to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This is extraordinary generosity. What was stunning to an original reader of this story many of whom, were, who would, if they were Jewish anyways, was what was being given away. You see, in the Jewish culture, you gave away a portion of your income, and that was considered very generous, quite generous compared to the surrounding culture. But here, they're not giving of their income stream, they're giving of their wealth. 
This is an agrarian culture. Land is wealth. It's the primary vehicle for wealth, for financial security, for having an inheritance, for taking care of your kids. And they're giving that away. They're selling it and giving the money away. Excuse me. They're not giving a percentage anymore. They're giving a proportion of whatever they have. If they had abundance, it was shared. And so I need to say what caused this freedom and generosity. Now, just before verse 34, there's a little phrase, verse 33. It says, and great grace was upon them all. Now, this is interesting, is it not? Luke is suggesting that grace is the source of our generosity. Grace is the power of generosity. Now, why do I say this is interesting? Because most Christians in Toronto and most Christians in this room have a general presupposition that goes something like this. Grace is how I got into the Christian life. It's kind of the elementary school of the Christian life. And then I move on to high school and college and I learn how to mature, not through grace, through something else, teaching, knowledge, discipleship. And there's a confusion because we're wrong when we think that. I need to ask you who are, here, who are here who are Christians this question. When you think of someone who consistently, radically gives away part of their wealth so that they have to adjust their income lower because of the generosity of their giving, do you consider that an act of Christian maturity? Oh, yes, you do. If grace causes that level of maturity in people this spiritually immature, they've just become Christians, how is grace just elementary school stuff? It is not. Grace is the beginning, and grace is the deepest end of the Christian life. What caused generosity? Grace. Why did grace have that power? Firstly, because grace tells us how wealthy we actually are in the things that matter. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty may become rich. This is grace, that God came down into humanity, into our sin, our evil, our cruelty, our wrong, our selfishness, our sin, out of love for us, out of compassion for us, out of mercy upon us, out of a deep affection for us, and saw us in our misery that we had caused, and despite the fact that we had caused it, He came into it. He came into it freely, lovingly. Why? To rescue us from it. God come down to be with us. Jesus taught us this. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's what God did. And he taught us that we need to trust him. He taught us we need to receive his love unconditionally. He taught us we need to stop trying to earn God's love and accept we cannot earn it. We need to come to God empty. He taught us that our sins need a savior. And then he himself showed us that he was the savior he was teaching us about. 
And he went to a Roman cross and he allowed himself to be nailed to it so that we could be freed from all the consequences of the sin that nailed him to it. Jesus died for us. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What do we now need that money can buy? Do we need status? In God's eyes, we're his beloved children, inheritors of all eternity because of what Jesus has done. Do we need any love? We are the beloved children of the infinitely loving God. You can't get more loved if you're, than if you're a Christian and you have the infinite love of God infinitely pouring itself out to you at every single moment. Glory. Do you want glory? When Jesus comes back and brings his own home with him, we will be home in glory, indescribable. So glorious our minds can hardly conceive it. Do we want freedom from anxiety and evil and tears? You won't have an anxious moment ever again. You won't experience tears ever again. When we first started Grace Toronto, we had a small group up near Laird and Eglinton. The person who was hosting was a a lawyer and banker. He had a lot to repent of, but we'll get to that later. (laughs) And when we talked about this, he stopped everybody, both Christians and non-Christians in this small group, and he went, what I'm hearing from you is I'll spend the rest of eternity not having an anxious thought. I can't imagine going two hours without an anxious thought. He was head of a fairly anxiety-inducing department in his bank. He says, I can't imagine an hour without anxiety. Oh, I can't. And he, he almost lost it just to have hours without anxiety. You'll have far more than that, ladies and gentlemen, if you're a Christian. You will have riches you cannot believe. Therefore, you will be free from needing the riches that money offers you, these pale imitations of riches that this world can give you. You are already infinitely wealthy in the things that really matter, and so were they. And guess what? They didn't need what the world could give because they already had something better. So they were free to give away their stuff. They'd receive the grace of God in a powerful way and in freedom they just gave away their stuff because they didn't need what their stuff could get them. They didn't need reputation. They didn't need pleasure. They didn't need comfort. They didn't need power. They didn't need any. They were full. There was no more room. And this has happened here. You're sitting in a building now that is the result of people, this generation of people who did just that. This building was purchased and renovated because people sold condos that were part of their retirement, that people sold equity offerings from their company, people sold all kinds of wealth. People sold cars. People sold their stuff. Six figures. One person had to be talked down from a seven-figure gift because we didn't want them to ruin their lives. This is the freedom that grace brings because you're already rich. And then there's a second reason why grace brings freedom is because you know who owns your stuff. 
and it ain't you. In this story, these people are the legal owners of their property. This isn't communism. They don't think that the people own my stuff and therefore I'm going to give it away freely. They know I own my stuff, but they know at a deeper level, God owns me. Therefore, all the stuff I own, actually, He owns. If you don't understand that God owns you and your stuff, you don't understand grace. You're beyond, you're before elementary school. So let's read together elementary text. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. To live is Christ and to die is gain. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And the verse that helped me to leave secular work and to go into ministry, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for ourselves but for him who for our sake died and was raised. We are owned by the lover and creator and savior of the universe and our souls. Here it is, men and women. Grace frees you from all sin and it frees you to be all in as God's chosen servant. All of you, all in for all that he wants from us for the glory of him and the flourishing of the world. All your life, all in. Grace costs God the life of his beloved son. Grace costs Jesus all. Grace frees us to follow Jesus in giving all of our lives away. And that includes our stuff. How about us? How are we doing with our stuff? Can you part with it? Can you give it away? Can you lower your retirement income expectations by giving your wealth away? What's stopping you? Lack of knowledge? Do you not know enough about the incarnation of the Son of God to be able to make this decision? Have you not pondered some of the deep Christocentric, Christological arguments about when Jesus came down, was the Son of God still in heaven and on earth? It's a good question. I've been thinking about it myself. No, that's not what's stopping you, though. Your heart's not free. You still think you need something that money can give you to make you wholly you not knowing that the whole of you was made to be in Christ and have Christ in you and all of Christ emanating from you, that's the you your heart is actually looking for. You see, when Jesus comes to you in all of his holy majesty and you feel his divine glory surrounding you and the weight of his majesty upon you and the depth of his love piercing you, 
You will have no doubts about how unworthy you are, how evil and sinful and selfish you are. It will crash down upon you, men and women, like it crashed down upon Isaiah when he met God in the heavenly vision in Isaiah 6. And the, and the cherubim said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And he said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Seeing the glory of God showed him the grossness of himself. And then an angel touched his lips and cleansed him. And what did he do? As grace crashed down upon him, he turned to God and said, here am I. Send me all in. Grace will truly free you if you let it. And greed will truly kill you if you're not careful. Immediately after this amazing story in, in Acts 4, there's this wild contrast. Ananias and Sapphira are killed by God for keeping back money and telling a lie. Great. Thank you, fellas. <laughs> Let me give you some context that scholars think about. They think that this keeping back of a portion was a pretty large portion. It wasn't like they kept back 2%. They kept back a lot. I don't know. I can't tell. I'll, I'll trust that's a good, good guess. We're going to confront this troubling part about people dying for lying because it doesn't seem to be right or fair. Let's stop for a moment and look at what they actually did. They keep back a large portion, we think, of the proceeds of the sale. They hide the fact that they've kept it back. They go very publicly to the apostles and give the money. So there is greed keeping the money back. There is deliberate deceit of God's people and God's chosen leaders. There seems to be a desire to look good to them but to keep the money, to have both. They wanted it all. There's deep selfishness here. There's deep hypocrisy here. There's a complete lack of integrity here. So just bank that. These two are a mess morally and spiritually. Their greed gave birth to a host of other sins. And in this text it says that those sins led to them dying. Men and women, greed is not a joke. Greed got them killed. Greed is folly. It's a gateway drug to all kinds of false gods that we think can make us feel alive. Pleasure, comfort, power, influence, protection from harm. Money can help us get all of that. Greed and all that it offers will tempt you, but it will also kill you. Remember that greed often costs too much. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, money often costs too much. Benjamin Franklin said, money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. The more someone has, the more they tend to want. Philosopher, American philosopher Ayn Rand said, money is only a tool. It will take you wherever you want to go, but it will not replace you at the center. Money is a tool, and they used it. Now, having said that, let us confront this head on. 
The question becomes, did they deserve to be killed and what is God doing? Because almost every person in Toronto would say they didn't deserve to be killed for giving some money to some charity and keeping back some for themselves. This is an overreaction by God. This is something for those of us who are not yet Christians that I would like you to reflect upon. What moral wrongs outrage you? What things do you think should be punished severely? Think about those things. Now ask yourself, in a different culture, in a different part of the world, what things outrage that culture that would attract similar outrage and maximum punishment? Are they the same? Well, some are and some aren't. Now let's go back 50 to 100 years, the cultures of the world. How much would they agree with our standards? You see, we have to be careful. How arrogant would it be for us to think that our judgments in this moment, conceptualized with our own cultural assumptions, are so wise and perfect that they're transculturally, transhistorically right? No, we are subject to our own context. Just as we see the blind spots of history, history will see the blind spots of us. Who doesn't have the blind spots? I say to you, if you're investigating Christianity and God exists, He's the one who has no blind spots. So who do we think has a better grasp of what to judge and how that judgment should play itself out than God, if He exists? If God exists, a God of perfect wisdom and knowledge and perfect moral purity, He knows whether they should die or not. Now, for those of us who are mature Christians and we know our Bibles well, and that's some of us here, we know, and we've, I've heard this, it's in most of the commentaries, this feels like an Old Testament event, God killing someone for some small offense. And the particular Old Testament event that came to my mind and came to the mind of several commentators is the one of Uzzah. Uzzah was a Levite. His job, as some of the Levites were, was to slip the poles through the Ark of the Covenant holder to carry the Ark of the Covenant wherever it would go because the rule that God had given was no one touches God's holy Ark. For people who touch it are sinful and God's holiness cannot, cannot interact with human sin without disastrous consequences. And Uzzah was trained from birth to know that, to carry the, the poles of the Ark on his shoulders, to put them through. He knew all that. So what did David do? Throw that sucker on a cart. Let a, let a bunch of mules or oxen pull it. And he agreed with it. He drove the cart. Total violation. And then when the cart started to do this and the ark started to move, he put out his hand. The very thing he'd been trained from birth to know not to do. Do not touch the holy ark with unholy human hands. He knew and God killed him because God is holy and will fulfill his promises. Did he deserve to die? His heart was filled with selfishness and sin just like yours and mine are. He'd been raised from birth never to touch that ark and he did. Was it not highly presumptuous of him? Yes, it was. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied. They were hypocrites. They had greed in their hearts. Did they deserve to die? I ask you a question that this passage raises. What sin would you say makes someone deserve to die? What sin do you want to tell God is the one deserving? You see the problem. You're telling God 
that you know better what sins deserve death and what sins don't. Let me ask you a question, Christians. What sins attract God's judgment? Just murder, sexual assault, and a couple others? All of them. Every single one, because if God is holy, every single sin is an infinite affront to his moral beauty. What sins forced Jesus on the cross? Just Epstein and a few others? No, all of our sin. The death of God's beloved son was to pay the fatal consequences that sin had created. All sin. Christians, this is grace. That God doesn't kill all of us for any of our sins. Grace judges sin by having the Son of God take the judgment for our sin. This is not a case of the Old Testament God slipping in and making a surprise photobomb cameo appearance in the New Testament. There is and only has ever been one God, and He's the same God. I was in seminary, and this, uh, this passage was raised in particular to an Old Testament professor. And he said, you, you, you seminary students tend to think that the God of the New Testament is some Santa Claus-type nice God, and the God of the Old Testament's got an edge. It's the same God. Now, he was old, so he quoted a Jim Croce song. You don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't rip the mask off the old Roan Ranger, and you don't mess around with Yahweh. And we all just like, it's the same God. Men and women, the God of grace is the God who judges sin because he sent that judgment upon his son. And if you don't think he takes sin seriously, what did he do to his beloved innocent son? Yeah. You know what? If Ananias and Sapphira were here, they would tell us something. They would say, you're scandalized by us dying but you're not scandalized by Jesus dying. We, di we died for our own sin. He died for yours and mine. He died innocently. We died deservedly, and you're scandalized by us. You don't know grace. We live in eternal joy. Don't be troubled by us. Be troubled by the fact that you're not troubled enough by the death of Jesus. You're more troubled by our death than his. What is the scandal of the New Testament? It's not the death of Ananias and Sapphira. It's the death of the innocently, in, infinitely innocent son. There we go. Now, some of you uh, biblical types are going to wonder, but why at this point? Because there are other people who died or didn't die for all kinds of sins in the New Testament. This does still seem to be a bit strange. So I will give you what I think is the best redemptive historical biblical argument for why it happened. It's the same reason why Uzzah happened. 
as it happened when Israel had been sinning and was in a fragile state of trying to rebuild their relationship with God, he'd given them the ark back from their enemies, the Philistines. They were on their way back to renewing their life with God. It was in a fragile state. And just at that point, one of their leaders did this very wrong thing that if it was allowed to continue would have corrupted the whole understanding of who God was. Here in the New Testament is an analogy. The church is at a very early fragile state. People are learning to be incredibly generous. And in the midst of great favor, many people becoming Christians, real unity, amazing generosity, this guy's going to come in like a hypocrite and spread a cancer of fake face Christianity just when it's real, of hungering for both the reputation of generosity and the reaping the rewards of still being wealthy. Hypocritical Christianity. Do you know what a cancerous piece that would be to be injected into the body of Jesus at that fragile time? That's why scholars and that's why I think that happened, for people to be reminded that there's freedom in grace, but there's folly in greed. Men and women, most of us actually struggle with feeling a little like Ananias and Sapphira. Most of us here aren't sure if we're giving enough. We feel like we wish we were like this church. We know that we cannot be filled with grace and nourish greed, but we're not sure we're not nourishing our greed. We know that they're inseparable, and we know that we're called to choose whom we will serve. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and mammon, by which he meant the idol of money. We want to follow this road to freedom, but we're feeling inadequate. And so I'm going to say to you, do three things. Firstly, examine yourself. Examine your spending habits and your relationship to money. If you're not manifesting a generosity of giving such that your lifestyle is being challenged and reduced by the content of your giving, then you have an initial diagnosis. I don't understand grace well enough. I'm not freed enough yet. Mourn that. Weep about that. And go to God and ask Him to change your heart. Delve deeper into your heart and go, what is holding me back? Secondly, examine Jesus Christ. Spend the next week, if you want specifics, reading Romans 3. Read it over and over again. Read Hebrews 1 over and over again. Again, read these chapters, meditate upon them, allow the grace of Jesus to seep into your soul. Examine yourself, examine Jesus Christ, and finally exercise the muscle of generosity. Many of us have undeveloped muscles of generosity. We know the goal is at least 10% of our income and some of our wealth as needs arise and abundance provides, so start there. I remember I was... Um, I had uh, pretty big student loans uh, coming, um, uh, coming at me, and in my third year of, uh, of law school, the person discipling me said, have you got your check yet from OSAP? I said, no. He said, okay, well, you've been a Christian a year now, so when it comes, 10% to your local church, please. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is loans. How can loans be income? He said, is money coming in? 
then give a tenth of it back to Jesus. Start learning to be generous and to give. So I did it because I didn't know what else to do. (laughs) And it started me on a path to exercising the muscle of giving that has helped me stay free of the folly of greed. I was telling some other students about this, and then they were like, oh, we could do that too. I'm like, what? So what they did was they had a a person who wanted to go on summer missions, and they used to go out on Friday night to a restaurant and grab bubble tea. Well, we didn't have bubble tea back then, but it's, it's equivalent back then. You know, spend six or eight bucks or whatever it was, you know, burger and fries or whatever. And they said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to buy a few bags of popcorn. We're going to go to someone's house and we're going to save all that money. We're just going to throw in the money we were going to do. So this was like November. By March, they had enough to send one student for a full summer on a missions project. So they kept going. By late April, they almost had, they had half of them for another. Just a bunch of students trying to take seriously. Was it even that hard? I don't know. I do know this. Several years ago, when we were new, and we had another building, and we had a big mortgage on that building for our tiny little church of about 100, 150 people, we had a person who was a new Christian, or seemed to be coming back to us, their faith, I wasn't sure. And they were uh, working in Bay Street, they were doing quite well. And um, he came to me one day, it was around this time of year, it was a little later, and they said, I just, I just got my bonus. And I wanted to talk to you because I'm learning that I need to be generous. And so I went to my accountant and I said, I want to start including in our thing generous giving. And so we did some math and it turns out, you know, actually if I'm generous, I will not, won't lose as much as I thought because I get tax. You know there are tax breaks for... <laughs> yes, I know that. <laughs> he said, how are we doing? You said something about the budget being behind. I said, well, to be honest... We're 200,000 behind, uh, so anything you can do would be, would be great. It's great. Done. Your deficit is gone. Grace frees you. Grace frees you because Jesus loves you. Let his love free you, and let his grace abide in you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, and I praise you, that the same grace that existed then is the grace that is available to us right now. We have seen it in our midst, and we long to see it again in each of our hearts. I pray that grace would reign in our hearts and generosity would pour out of our time, of our emotions, and of our money for your glory, that we would become confusing, troubling, and irresistible to our culture. In Christ's name, amen. We're now going to have a song of response. Please rise.